Are you ready? <laughs> Let's pray. It's such a delight, O oh Father, every week to stand in this pulpit and to proclaim the excellencies of your word. Help me now to preach only what is true. Protect us, Lord, from error. May we not take error about your truth lightly, but may we long for the pure milk of the word, long for the pure milk of the word, and may our souls be richly fed on your truth this morning from this, your book. And so we ask, Father, would you send your spirit to work in my heart and in the hearts of all who are here and listening to this message today. And as the message is about, may you receive all the glory for it, for you alone are worthy, soli deo gloria. Amen and amen. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. That will be the first passage we look at in just a few minutes. We're also going to look at John 17, Ephesians 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 1, and Romans 11. And uh, don't panic, we're only going to touch on these. But um, I am persuaded that what made the Protestant Reformation so enormously powerful and fruitful was its exalted vision of the supremacy of God. It was never Martin Luther's ambition to change the world or to divide the church. Nothing like that was on his mind when he um, nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. He simply wanted relief from the personal guilt and the sure condemnation that he personally expected to receive from Almighty God. It nearly drove him crazy. He found that relief in the scriptures when he rediscovered in Paul's letter to the Romans the gospel of justification by faith alone. But Luther could never have anticipated how this doctrine would hit the world like a comet impacting the earth. Yes, Luther found the forgiveness he was looking for, but the gospel is only frankly, penultimate about the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is penultimate in God's scheme of things. What is ultimate, really, is the glory of God. And when the gospel exploded upon the scene in medieval Europe, the spiritual blast radius reached to the furthest corners of the world. And millions upon millions of people discovered the glory of God, the way he has revealed himself in his word and in his world. This morning I want to talk to you about the last of the five slogans of the Reformation. If you're with us for the first time, we've been going through the five solas, which are kind of the five key slogans of the Reformation. It, it, it was never intended to encompass all of the doctrine of the Reformation. That wasn't what it was about. Uh, it was mainly about salvation and authority, justification and authority. You have sola scriptura, covered the authority. The other four talked about justification, how a sinner can be justified in the eyes of God. 
And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the fifth of these Reformation slogans. So far, we have, we have covered soli gratia, which is grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and all of it is revealed in soli scriptura, scriptura which is scripture alone, and finally, and the highest sola of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. I want to suggest to you that just as the power of the Reformation church in medieval times was owing to the rediscovery of the glory of God, so the weakness of the modern church in our day is owing to a greatly diminished and, I would dare say, diminishing view of the glory of God. Never in the history of America has Christianity been so weak and so ineffective as it is today. And frankly, I believe the problem that we have is a, not a problem with program, not a problem with um, structure. It's a problem with what we glory in. Frankly, I believe the problem is we have become, as the American church, so self-oriented, so self-centered. Our religion tends to be about Jesus and me. The Bible is about me. The, the baptism that the Lord gave us is now not, not something that belongs to the church, but belongs to me. The Lord's table belongs to me. And in some churches, you can just get up and go to wherever the Lord's table is set off to the side and serve yourself. It's about me. Christian music on the radio today is almost always about me. Church is about me. Salvation is about me. Even the fact that God sent his only beloved son into the world to bear the curse of God somehow has been reoriented so that it is now about me. And this is horribly misguided. The last thing Dan Kirk needs is more of me. <laughs> Michael Horton weighed in on this a number of years ago when he wrote these words. A bit of an extensive quote here, but I think he says it better than I ever could. He writes, Often our worship services are attempts to entertain rather than worship. When the preaching centers on our own happiness rather than the attributes and achievements of God, we attend church to passively enjoy and receive from the professionals, the preacher, the choir, the soloists, the occasional drama troupe. But I believe this way of coming to public worship is indicative of human-centered theological orientations. If Jesus, he writes, if Jesus Christ entered the back of our church on Sunday morning, would we clap our hands and dance and sing, happy days are here again? Would we show him our God is rad, he's my dad's sweatshirt? Or would the room suddenly fall silent and awestricken? He writes, what we believe about God and salvation ultimately determines the object, focus, fervor, and direction of our worship. If we really rediscover the biblical portrait of God, we would not need entertainment gimmicks. Enthusiasm would not be artificially generated. And because our minds would be connected to it all, there would be a lasting impact even when we are not surrounded by choirs and musicians and a cast of players, end quote. 
after Luther rediscovered the gospel, he and the other reformers began tracing the gospel threads as they reached toward every page of the Bible. And as they let scripture form their theology, what emerged was a radically transformative vision of the glory of God. Remember, the people of that day couldn't listen to a sermon in their own language. They couldn't understand what was being preached. And if they did, it would have been false teaching. Not only that, but they were not permitted to have a Bible. And even if they were permitted and could afford a Bible, it again would be written in a language that they could not read. This is why that period of time in world history is called the Dark Ages. The gospel was covered up by man's traditions and man's teaching and man's ideas. I have four main points this morning, and in the interest of full disclosure, I want to credit Dr. Stephen Yule for helping with the structure on this to uh, help me hang my thoughts. This was a difficult task because Soli Deo Gloria is so enormous. How do you put it in one sermon? I bumped into him yesterday, and he said, take it away, brother. <laughs> this is not his sermon, but he, he was tremendously helpful to me. When you studied the Bible, here's the first one. When you study the Bible, you discover that, number one, God is infinitely glorious in his person. Now, this is not going to be a, a theological treatise this morning. But we need to start here. God is infinitely glorious in his person. Theologians refer to this as his intrinsic glory. His very substance and personhood are glorious beyond description. And we see this in Isaiah 6. I did ask you to turn to Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah 6 is what we read. Before we read it, would you just, as you're listening, would you just ask the Holy Spirit to do something in your heart, not in the person next to you. Do something to your heart. May he reveal the glory of God to you. In the year King Uzziah died, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The idea there is the longer the robe, the greater the king. This train filled the entire temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, stop there. Um, after hearing the seraphim declare, holy, 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 we would expect him to say, the whole earth is full of his holiness. That's not what he says. The whole earth is full of his glory. Everywhere you look, if you have eyes to see, you see his glory. 
Notice the seraphim say nothing about what God has done, nothing about salvation or judgment or even creation. Isaiah is merely experiencing an unexpected revelation of God's person. And it was terrifyingly glorious. Now, why would I use that adjective, terrifying? Is that an adjective? Why would Isaiah modify in this way? Notice the prophet's response. He says, in verse 4, he continues, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, and the house was filled with smoke, just like the Shekinah glory. And I said, here's Isaiah's response, Isaiah, the prophet, woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone, or I am coming apart. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. I have a dirty mouth. And I dwell among a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen his glory. I'm a dead man. By the way, it's not just God. When the angels would appear, what was the first thing they would say? They'd say, fear not. I love it when Al Mohler says, um, angels, we, we portray them as little floating babies with wings. We put them on wallpaper and napkins, party favors. But when a real angel showed up, first thing he said was, don't die. Fear not. Why? It wasn't even God. It was just an angel. And he was terrifyingly glorious. How much greater must it have been to have seen in this vision in the temple the glory of God himself. No doubt, the glory of the second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate. And notice how the prophet responds. He doesn't dance with glee. There's no happy days are here again. No, the very prophet of the Lord fell on his face like a dead man and pronounced a curse on himself. Woe is me. I am lost. It can be accurately translated, I am coming apart. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I have a sinful mouth. And it's, whatever comes out of the mouth is, indicates what's in the heart, right? And I dwell among a people who are just like me. We're in big trouble. God has arrived. You see, beloved, an authentic understanding of, and a biblical vision of God's intrinsic glory doesn't leave you feeling happy and satisfied. Not if, not, if you're not in Christ. It reduces you to nothing and causes the sinner to tremble with fear or anger. This is where the gospel begins. You'll never know the overwhelming joy and relief and satisfaction of the gospel until you understand the peril you are in as a sinner standing before the thrice holy God. 
The bad news must be really, really bad if the good news is going to be really, really good. And let me just tell you, the bad news is really, really bad. This is, God and, this is God's intrinsic glory. It is God's eternal glory. It is the glory that the three persons of the Godhead shared eternally before anything outside of himself was called into existence. He was and is and will always be glorious. And so God is infinitely glorious in his person. That's where we begin. Number two, God alone is worthy to receive glory. He's the only one worthy of receiving glory. Through Isaiah, God threatened Israel with judgment because of their idolatry by declaring in chapter 42, no need to turn there, but 42 verse 8, he says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. God here is not speaking about his intrinsic glory, but he's talking about his ascribed glory. You see, the reason God created man was not because he was lonely. God didn't create us because, man, it's been an awful long time, this eternity, and there's nothing out here, and I just need somebody. Listen, he wasn't lonely. He was infinitely happy. He was infinitely satisfied in himself for all eternity. His only experience for all eternity was complete fullness. And we might say he lacked lack. There just wasn't any. Medieval theologians used to refer to this as the full bucket problem. How do you explain in human terms that God's eternal joy has always been as complete as a completely full bucket is full? All the time. And if any of his glory splashes out, he doesn't lose any. It is intrinsic to who he is. He is always, always, always full. And so how do you explain that? God has never been lonely. He's never been lonely. So here's the question. Why did he create man? That's the full bucket syndrome. Why did he create man? He didn't need us. The cosmos exists to display the vast and infinite glory of God. When God created man, the motivation was he wanted to share his infinite goodness with beings who were created with the unique capacity to apprehend his glory and to enjoy his glory and be satisfied with his glory. Do you realize that penguins were not created to be satisfied by the glory of God? My dog, Hunter, could care less about the glory of God. He likes treats. <laughs> That's what satisfies him. He likes to come up and snuggle. That's what satisfies him. He knows nothing of the glory of God. We've never seen him go in the backyard to look toward our creek in the evening and see the, the descending sun and the beautiful sunrise and him going, hmm, isn't God good? He doesn't have the capacity, but you were created with this special capacity that nothing else 
on earth has. You can be satisfied in the glory of God. You can experience joy just by seeing the glory of God. And that's why the cosmos exists. That's why he created the universe. The cosmos exists to display the vast and infinite glory of God. And we learn this from the Bible in texts like Psalm 19, where David affirms, quote, the heavens declare the what? The glory of God. And the sky proclaims his handiwork. You see, my friend, everything that exists, exists for his glory. It exists so we would ascribe glory to his name. And when you look into the night sky, or when you click on that stargazer app that you have on your phone that identifies all the stars and shows the Milky Way in real time. And when you consider the seemingly infinite space that there is between the stars and the galaxies, and and you wonder, what is all that space for? Couldn't we have done this more efficiently? Why is there so much space? Scientists, some, believe it's just infinite. I mean, we can't find the end of it, not even with the Hubble telescope. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's why all that space is there. That's why all those comets are there. That's why all those stars and planets and galaxies are there. That's what they're for. They are there to exist. They exist to reveal something of the infinite creator who made it without ever exerting any effort at all. He just said, Light, and there was. Let there be light. How should we respond? We should respond like David did in in, in Psalm 8. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it was the same David in, in Psalm 29 who said, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And we've learned about this before, right? The name of God is just a word that describes or points to God in all of his person. Everything that it means to be God is summed up in that one word, name. The name of God. So ascribe glory to the Lord. The glory that is due his name. To ascribe the glory due his name means that we recognize it when we see it. We delight in it. We proclaim it. The way we like to say it around here is we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Can you just say that with me? We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God, in the joy of all peoples. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And by doing so, by declaring the excellencies of God, God is greatly glorified, and we are deeply satisfied. No less than Jonathan Edwards weighs in via his 18th century book, The End for Which God Created the World. And he writes these words. 
the end or goal of creation is that creation might glorify God. Now, what is glorifying God but rejoicing at the glory he has displayed? The happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God by which also God is magnified and exalted. If Edwards is right, and I think he is, then God's insistence that man glorify him is not a selfish expectation. It would be if you insisted on that. And too often, more often than we know, we do. Worship me, glorify me. That's my seat. That's my last cookie. Rather, rather than being a selfish expectation on God's part, it is an invitation from God for man to find his highest joy and deepest hope in the greatest good, which is God himself. You see, God is no idolater. He worships no other God before him. And I'm serious about that. If God loves us, then God's duty is to point us to the highest good. Therefore, he points us to himself. Not to us. Not unto us, O oh Lord. Not unto us. But to you alone be the glory. Sometimes when I'm standing here and I read these things, I have a distinct sense of what they are saying. Just declaring from this pulpit, even from the words on my page, the glory of God does something to my heart that fills me with joy and knowing at the same time that God is glorified in that when I am satisfied with him. And practically speaking, you know, that's how you battle temptation, right? You battle one great desire with a superior desire. You battle one counterfeit satisfaction with a greater satisfaction, namely the glory of God, the person of God. And so I say, do you want the highest joy and the deepest hope a human being can enjoy? Set your gaze upon the glory of God and hold it there until your soul is duly impressed. Stop being in such a hurry. You'll never delight in God if your prayer time is two minutes long and your time in the Word is five minutes long. I'm sorry, there's, there's just too much about yourself that you need to get over. At least that it's, that's true for me. And beloved, part of my supposition here is that the church has lost these things. And there are men who are calling us back to them for sure. But progressively, we are so enamored with every other thing. But when you look around and you see the beauty of the creation, when you see the autumn leaves and the beautiful ducks, I have, we call them the mallard family, they land in our creek behind the house all the time. And the ducks and the geese, they're so beautiful. The clouds, the streams, even the gorgeous sunsets. When, when you read his word, 
in all of these things, you can experience joy in God by ascribing to him the glory due his name. You get the joy. He gets the glory. The problem, however, is that man is hardwired from birth to deny the glory of God and to suppress the glory of God. And we choose rather to worship the creature instead of the creator. That's why the Bible so frequently warns about idolatry. And James calls it spiritual adultery. The idea is you owe all of your love to God and you give it to something else. God is belittled and mocked any time a man worships anything other than the greatest good. Namely, God himself, because he alone is man's highest good. Again, Paul says in Romans 1, that this is why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. They suppress the truth of God, even though they clearly see his eternal power and divine nature in what God has made. Therefore, Paul says, they are without what? Without excuse. You know, you know there's a God. You have to suppress it to deny it. And by suppressing it, you incur the very judgment of God. And that's what the third point, that's why the third point is so important. First, God is infinitely glorious in his person. Second, God is, God alone is worthy of receiving glory. Third, God has most powerfully revealed his glory in man's salvation. God didn't send his son to save the world from climate change, melting icebergs, air pollution, shrinking rainforests, the extinction of endangered animals. He has sent his son to save sinners from his own just and holy wrath, which constitutes their just, and I say their just, our just and righteous wages because of sin. What we have in the gospel is the grace of God rescuing us from the wrath of God. John 17, could you turn there with me? Okay, we're on our second text. Oh, we'll get there. John 17, this is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We get to listen in. We don't have time to read this whole chapter. I'm just going to point out some things. We get to listen in to the second person of the Trinity speaking directly to the first person of the Trinity. Just, I mean, the night before, less than 24 hours before he's nailed to a cross. What would you be thinking? The premise here in Soli Deo Gloria is that the whole point of us and matter and energy and light and planets, and cosmos. And the whole point of it is the glory of God. You know what Jesus was thinking of? Knowing that he was going to be arrested, betrayed by his friend, murdered. Chapter 17, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. You think on his last night he would, been, he would have been thinking about the most ultimate things? This is it. Verse 4. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. He did, he, he did everything. The only thing that, that he had left was his passive obedience, just letting them arrest him, which he did. He accomplished the work that God gave him to do. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What was Jesus' mind on the night of his betrayal? The glory of God. The glory of God. You get the distinct impression that's what he was thinking about all the time. How can I glorify my Father? I'm here to glorify my Father. Everything I do, I do out of obedience to my Father. Why? So that the Father would be glorified in me. I will finish my work, and I will do it, though it cost me everything. Why? Because the Father is worthy. He's worthy. It was all about the glory of God. He's speaking of how God intends to glorify himself and his Son to the greatest degree possible, namely through the once-for-all substitutionary atonement of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That's how he will glorify himself ultimately. Think of the most beautiful display of God's creation you have ever seen. Some of you just immediately went to grandbabies. Me too. Think of the Grand Canyon, Victoria Falls. Think of the Mariana Trench with all the indescribable sea creatures in its depths. I think they found a new one this week. Think of your children, your family, or the most breathtaking breathtaking space nebula the Hubble telescope has ever discovered. All of these were created All of these were created with a word for the glory of God. But, but, here's the thing. All of them combined pale in significance when compared to the glory of the incarnation, active obedience, atoning sacrifice, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has revealed his glory in many ways. But he has most powerfully revealed his glory in man's salvation. And understand, the whole point is not a revelation of how worthy man was that God would be willing to die for him. No, 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 no. It is exactly the opposite. The glory of God is manifest in this, that man was unworthy to be saved. And yet God saved him. God has revealed his glory in many ways, but nothing compares to justification by faith alone. And then last of all, the doctrine of justification in particular manifests God's glory. Now we've come full circle. We're back to the doctrine of soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. This is the doctrine that stands like the morning star over the other four doctrines of the Reformation. God has orchestrated the reconciliation of sinners to himself in such a way that man receives all of the eternal benefits and God gets all the glory. Not most of the glory, not some of the glory, but he gets all of the glory. That was the point of soli deo gloria. 
It has to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by Scripture alone, so that it will be to the glory of God alone. I will not share my glory with another. The Roman Catholic model of salvation, and this is what the Reformation was all about. The Roman Catholic model of salvation puts man at the center. Yes, their view, in their view, God has provided all the material for salvation. Yes, God infuses grace into the soul of the penitent believer to increase his righteousness. But at the end of the day, the sinner is either meriting more grace by his works or losing grace via mortal sin. And then, even if he has played by all the rules his whole life, he still must experience the fires of purgatory to purify his soul from heaven, uh, from, from his sin before he can enter heaven. And where did that doctrine come from? Did it come from a glorious God? No. They will tell you. It came from the men who were leading the Roman Catholic Church. Where did the treasury of merit, prayer to the saints, the offer of indulgences, and the many other doctrines like them, they came from sin-stained imaginations of men and not from God's word. And that's why Martin Luther said, I do not trust councils or popes because they so often contradict one another. The Reformers' great concern with Roman Catholic doctrine was that at the end of the day, even in the best-case scenario, the credit or glory for salvation would be divided between God and man. The sinner will have done his part. They will then have something to boast in. He worked hard enough. He was sufficiently faithful enough. He was generous. He was prayerful. He was humble. He was devout. Salvation in this soteriological scheme would be to the glory of the Pope and the sinner with significant contribution from God. Not so in biblical redemption. And you say, my worldview students should be asking a question in their minds right now. How do you know? And that's a great question. So let's go to the next text. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Ephesians 1 and 2. We're going to hit some highlights here. I wish we had time to just read the whole thing. But uh, this is the Lord's Day. Maybe you have time for that today. Verse 3. This is Ephesians 1, verse 3. Verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So here's where salvation begins. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him, that one day we would stand before him blameless. You know that benediction I do every week? It talks about us standing with joy, blameless before him. How'd that happen? Paul says, because the blessed God chose you before the creation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So God predestined us to adoption. He predestined us to adoption. Verse 6, this kind of salvation is exclusively to, watch this, to the praise of his glorious grace to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, at the end of the day, what will happen is we will ascribe glory to God because he invented this salvation, which is by grace. Verse seven, in him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of, of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. And lavish here means he just pours it out. This is more than generosity. This is lavish And jump to verse 11. Here's a statement about God. In him we have obtained the inheritance, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of, now listen to how Paul describes God, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. How many things? All things. According to the counsel of his will. And verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, here we go, to the praise of his glory. Now I ask you, how can Paul conclude that this scheme that God came up with that Paul just described will inevitably have to be to the praise of his glory and his glory alone? Well, I will answer that question with a question. What contribution in this passage has the sinner made so far to his salvation? None. None. There's nothing that the sinner has done that is worthy of praise or boasting. And so let's continue. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you, now he's talking about us. All the rest of that stuff was about Jesus and about the Father. Now he talks about us. And you were, what's the next word? Dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I had a a brother, a dear brother one time came to me and he said, "Um, you know, you always think, when when you talk about what Paul says here in chapter 2, you're talking about spiritually dead I mean, you think about corpses, but you know what? 
I mean, it's real common for us to say that something is dead when it's not entirely dead. I mean, like, the battery in my car can be dead, but the dome light can still come on. To which I respond, Paul knew nothing of car batteries. <laughs> All he knew was corpses. How dead is dead? And I would just tell you that when I was wrestling with these issues relative to the gospel, this was the clincher for me. You know why we have the, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? To show us in picture form what he's talking about in chapter 2. What did Lazarus contribute to his resurrection? Look at verses 2 and 3. In which you once walked, following the, he's talking about you being dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, that's not very endearing. Does nothing for my self-esteem. What contribution has the sinner made in these verses? He's contributed something now. His sin. And then that glorious verse, verse 4. Two words. But God. I mean, don't we want to insert here, but there was one day when I kind of did the spiritual math, I kind of put it together. No. But God, the one in chapter one, who is all glorious, but God, look at verses four through six, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, that's resurrection, in Christ by grace you have been saved. And raised, and by the way, notice the past tense here. He's talking to believers. What's the implication? You should get this right. You should understand your salvation the way the Holy Spirit has revealed it. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... He, that is God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, or your version may say that, pointing back to faith and faith in salvation, is not your own doing. It is not your own doing. This faith, this salvation, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works. So that, and here's the clincher, so that no one may boast. Why must it be justification by grace alone? through faith alone, in Christ alone, by Scripture alone, without any contribution from man, so that it will be to the glory of God alone. So that no man will boast 
We are his workmanship. Isn't that interesting? And what's the next word? Created. <laughs> he loves to use terms that affect us, that describe us, but that we could have no power over, like being born again. And here it's being created. Paul loves to use creation language when he talks about the gospel, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, we should do good works. But we are not saved by good works. We are saved unto them. We are saved by God's grace and mercy alone. Now turn with me to one more text. Actually, there'll be two more. Um, but 1 Corinthians, and really for that, you just go back a few pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I read some of this this morning during the scripture reading. And let's just jump in here at verse 26. Love to hear your pages rattling. I've heard preachers say that all of my life. And then when I got in the pulpit and heard it one time, I thought, it's all these people turning to a place in the Bible where we can mutually be strengthened and edified by God speaking. Okay, so I said verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world that's me, to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world. That's me, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. That should be me. And even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Verse 29. So that no man may boast in the presence of God. No boasting. You didn't do anything for this. You didn't earn it. You didn't figure it out. You didn't even stumble into it as if you were walking the right path. No, no. God chose you. God chose you. And then finally, Look at verses 30 and 31. And as if he hadn't already said enough. Back to verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And why? Why? Why, why did none of us get to boast? Because it is of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God. And here's what we needed, the righteousness of God, the sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, here it is again, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or another way to say this, let the one who glories, glory in the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying all of this is solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Now, one more text, and you have to go back to the left again, just a few pages to chapter 11. And I know we're about out of time, so turn those pages quickly. This is 33 through 36. 
Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths. Okay, so, so here in Romans, Paul's just talking about all of this stuff. He, he, I mean, everything that I just described, and he's doing it in really explicit and, for some people, offensive language about the specifics of God's choice, so much so that he anticipates people responding, wait, 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 there's no injustice with God, is there? And when he gets done explaining all of that, it is, it is too much for the Apostle Paul. And he says, beginning with verse 33, Oh, the depths, the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Some of your versions say, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? You ever tell God what to do? In salvation? Who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that he might be repaid? What's his conclusion? All of this makes sense because, and here we go, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. You see, beloved, salvation is by grace alone so that it will be to the glory of God alone. Salvation is by faith alone so that it will be to the glory of God alone. Salvation is by and in Christ alone so that it will be to the glory of God alone. And we come to understand this great salvation through Scripture alone so that it will be to the glory of God alone. Do you realize what he's saying here in chapter 36? From him, through him, and to him are all things. What he's saying is God is the source of all things. God is the sustainer of all things. And God is the goal of all things. It all comes back to him from him, through him, and to him are all things. How should the believer respond? Oh, this is really easy to exegete. Look at the next verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Do you see the mercy, the rich, deep, infinite mercy of God? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It all comes down to worship. Every little practical area of your life comes down to worship. It's about the glory of God. Paul will even say, and we don't have time to hit all of these passages, and I need to, I need to be done right now, but Paul says... Even when you decide what you will eat or what you will drink, the glory of God is at stake. 
you can glorify God in everything. How should a believer respond? Make your life a living sacrifice to God. And you will find yourself saying in the end what David Livingston said after all of his wanderings through Africa, I never made a sacrifice. God will always be the giver. And if you have yet to settle with Christ, as Whitfield would say, if you have no place at all for Christ in your life, and you have not placed all of your hope in Jesus Christ, so that on the last day, you would discover God as Father rather than God as Judge, then I implore you to listen to the words of Jesus because they are for you. These are not words of condemnation. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened with a heavy load because you're trying to do it on by yourself and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, because I am humble and lowly at heart, and you will find rest. Don't you want the rest for your souls? Come to Jesus and say, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. Take my yoke upon, take my burden upon yourself. Because by your grace, I believe that Jesus is my only hope. Will you accept me? Will you accept me? Because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus. And then know for certain that God is the one who delights in nothing more than to justify the ungodly. And so we say in the end, soli Deo Gloria, all of life and all of salvation is to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. I feel, Father, that we are on holy ground here. And it is, it is wonderful to be your child by grace through faith and not be consumed with the terror of death because you have already given us life and you've given it not because we've earned it but because of the very fact that we didn't earn it and couldn't earn it. The only thing we earned was judgment but you, by your plan to glorify yourself for the joy of all who believe, you saved us. How can it be, O oh Lord, that you would be so gracious to sinners like me? Thank you, praise you, to God be the glory.